It was north against south, brother against brother. The northerners fighting for freedom from slavery, the southerners for their right to rule. No, no, I didn't just veer off into the American Civil War, but I am talking about a civil war. This one, between Israelite and Israelite in the early 900s BCE. After the death of King Solomon, the United Monarchy split into two separate Israelite kingdoms, the Kingdom of Israel in the north and the Kingdom of Judah in the south. It was a calamity, but it also could have been worse. The separate kingdoms now had their own kings, their own tribes, their own capitals, and their own places of worship. But they both kept the same god, and this was the silver lining. What might have ended Judaism centuries before it even began instead preserved the Israelite religion in both kingdoms, even while they struggled against each other and ultimately had very separate destinies. Scholars are divided about whether there was a bloody rebellion, as described in the Hebrew Bible, or whether the northern kingdom of Israel simply developed on its own, independently of Judah. Either way, we know that both kingdoms existed. This was a turbulent and chaotic time, and some of it can actually still be seen today in Israel. So what happened? Why did the United Monarchy end? What does it all mean for Jewish history? That's our topic today. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Back when the Israelites were a loose collection of tribes, mulling over whether to create a king, plenty of people warned against establishing a monarchy. The main worry was that kings can become tyrants. And the real king, anyway, is God. The three kings of the united monarchy, Saul, David, and Solomon, but especially David and Solomon, they enjoyed glorious achievements that made their century the golden age of Israelite history. But they also had their authoritarian tendencies, which earned the wrath of various attractors and culminated in the end of the unified kingdom that they had built. King Solomon was a great builder. From the temple complex in Jerusalem to fortifications at other cities to huge extraction projects for natural resources, Solomon brought the united monarchy to its peak in wealth, power, and influence, or so says the Hebrew Bible anyway. Of course, all that is very expensive. Government finances had to be collected to pay for everything, and huge amounts of labor were needed to work the mines and build the buildings. So Solomon had instituted both high taxes and a system of compulsory labor, both of which were, naturally, heavily resented and they were especially hated by the Israelites in the northern part of the kingdom, who felt the burden more than the well-connected southerners did down in Judah, who enjoyed the benefits of close proximity to Jerusalem and the king. Here's a good piece of advice from way back in ancient history. Keep your friends close, but keep your low-level palace servants with a propensity for intrigue even closer. One of Solomon's minor officials, a man named Jeroboam, brewed a revolt against Solomon, Jeroboam had visions of grandeur in which he would lead the ten tribes in the north in their own kingdom, away from Judah's oppressive taxes and practically enslaved labor. In about the year 931 BCE, King Solomon died, and his son, Rehoboam, grandson of King David, took the throne. Rehoboam was well advised to make some reforms, lower the taxes, and end compulsory labor. Nip this rebellion in the bud. 
But Wahobolam, instead, he doubled down. In a deft bit of diplomacy at his coronation, Rehoboam declared to his subjects, My father flogged you with whips, but I will flog you with scorpions. My feeling is, even if you don't have a phobia of scorpions, which I definitely do, that was still a suboptimal position for the king to take. Flog them with scorpions being unmistakably worse than let them eat cake, a fact which did not go unnoticed by the Israelites in the north. The Book of Kings recorded that when all Israel saw that the king had not listened to them, the people answered the king, We have no portion in David, no share in Jesse's son. To your tents, Israel, now look to your own house, O David. Meaning, we no longer want to associate with the monarchy of the house of David. We're out of here. The Hebrew Bible provides another reason for the breakup of the kingdom, this one theological. Despite his many accomplishments, Solomon had fallen in love with the foreign gods of his foreign wives and had therefore sinned against Yahweh. For building temples for other gods and allowing their worship, God punished Solomon by taking away his kingdom upon his death. Although the Israelites were not monotheists at this time, Solomon's story was written centuries later when the Israelites were making a big push towards worshiping Yahweh as the sole God. This theological explanation for the breakup of the United Monarchy helped the biblical writers in two ways. One, it explained why the Israelites had lost their once great unified kingdom. It was punishment for idolatry. And two, it explained why now, when these writers were putting down these stories hundreds of years later, why now it was essential to keep faith with Yahweh. We don't want our kingdom to go the way of Solomon's, was the warning. And this is a powerful theme throughout the Israelite narrative. Good kings worship Yahweh and reject other gods, and as a result, they and their subjects are rewarded. Bad kings do the opposite and lose their kingdoms, usually at enormous cost in blood and treasure. Whichever viewpoint you want to ascribe, the golden era of Israelite history came to an inglorious end just about a hundred years after it began. Not only did Judah and Israel go their separate ways, but three more territories broke off as well. Ammon, Moab, and Edom. Solomon's son Rehoboam remained king of Judah, the capital still at Jerusalem, his kingdom comprised of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Jeroboam became the first king of Israel in the north, ruling over ten tribes. Israel was the bigger and more powerful state, but Judah the more stable. It retained the Davidic line of kings for centuries. Israel cycled through one king after another, each attempting to secure a dynasty and most failing. Although in some respects the two Israelite kingdoms were still the same people, the reality was that their fates were no longer intertwined. They were going their separate ways, never to come back together again. The separation between Judah in the south and Israel in the north was not exactly peaceful. For the next several decades, the two would fight essentially a civil war as they tried to secure and consolidate their respective territories. Judah was in it to win back its glorious kingdom, given in its entirety by God to the house of David to rule forever. 
Israel was in it for King Jeroboam to establish himself as the undisputed leader and to be finally free from the reach of Judah. But both were individually too weak to defeat the other. The Hebrew Bible tells us that about 15 years after Solomon's death, in the year 913 BCE, Israel and Judah met in a colossal battle at Mount Zemaraim near Jerusalem, which was inside the kingdom of Judah. Judah won a decisive victory, repelling the invaders of Israel with the slaughter of half a million of them on the battlefield. And yet the great battle was kind of a draw. King Jeroboam was weakened enough that he was no longer a threat to the kingdom of Judah. But Judah, which by then was led by a new king, Rehoboam's son Abiyam, didn't get Israel back, and the two kingdoms remained split and still angry. But did any of this ever really happen? Once again, we have only the Hebrew Bible as our source. We know that the kingdoms of Judah and Israel really did exist, but some historians question whether there was really a united monarchy under David and Solomon. If there wasn't, well, then there could have been a rebellion under Jeroboam, for there would have been nothing to rebel against. Instead, these historians argue that the kingdom of Israel developed separately and independently from the kingdom of Judah. Judah in the south came first, and then sometime later the larger Israel was established up north. Instead of there being one large, wealthy, powerful, unified kingdom, Judah and Israel were both small to middling states in the crowded Near East, led by the minor kings David and Solomon. Now at the end of the day, this doesn't change a whole lot in terms of the ultimate sweep of Jewish history. But it's interesting, because beginning with King Jeroboam in the early 900s BCE, the Kingdom of Israel in the north developed an entirely separate infrastructure for the worship of God. Some of it can still be seen today. The question is, why would they do that? I've often found myself at the northern edge of Israel, right up next to the border with Lebanon, at a nature reserve called Tel Dan. It's a great spot for hiking and walking. Israel's national trail runs right through it. It was a frequent stop on the Birthright Israel trips I led. It's also a great spot for archaeology, and the ruins of the ancient city of Dan are still there for exploring. Dan has a long and fascinating history, and for our purposes, it was one of the most important cities in the Kingdom of Israel. In the middle of the city of Dan today lies the square foundation of what was once a large platform. It doesn't look like much, and if you didn't know what you were looking at, you wouldn't really know what you were looking at. Although after listening to this now, you will know what you're looking at. This foundation is what remains of a huge altar that King Jeroboam built at Dan to rival the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. It's interesting that he chose to rival the Jerusalem temple, not replace it. That is, when Israel broke away from Judah, Jeroboam could have also adopted a new god and started a new religion. After all, that was pretty common practice in the ancient world. But he didn't. Jeroboam kept Yahweh as the national god of the kingdom of Israel. Why? The biblical scholar Richard Elliott Friedman supplies us with an elegant answer. The people of the kingdom of Israel still worshipped Yahweh and still shared their history and religious practices with the Israelites down in Judah. This included holding the primacy of the Ark of the Covenant, which was still in the temple in Jerusalem. And so on holidays and other occasions, writes Friedman, 
huge numbers of people from Israel would head down into Judah, bringing with them a sizable portion of the country's livestock and produce. And, Friedman points out, there in Jerusalem they would be inundated with the Davidic monarchy, from the grandeur of what David and Solomon built to the current king, King Rehoboam, and his successors, all of them direct descendants of David. For Jeroboam, it was a propaganda nightmare. So King Jeroboam, says the Bible, built two competing religious centers for his subjects to bring their sacrifices and their tourist dollars instead of the temple in Jerusalem. He built one center at Bethel, which was down south, close to Jerusalem. And he built the second all the way up at his northernmost city, Dan, right here where we're proverbially standing in front of the remains of this huge stone altar. Jeroboam then decorated the altar with a different symbol than the golden cherubs that adorned the temple in Jerusalem. Cherubs are kind of angel-like figures with wings, and they form the platform in which the presence of God rests inside the Holy of Holies in the temple. Well, here at Dan, on top of this altar, and down at Bethel, which had the same thing, the Bible tells us Jeroboam placed not cherubim, but instead a golden calf. Ah, wait a second here. I've heard about a golden calf before. It's a very famous story. It comes from the book of Exodus. When Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments from God, the Israelites down below get impatient. They decide to build their own divine idol to worship instead of the invisible God who is taking too long. The people get Moses' brother, Aaron, to build them a golden calf. When Moses eventually comes down, he destroys the golden calf, and as punishment, the Israelites will have to wander for 40 years in the desert. So what then is a golden calf, the symbol of idolatry, instead doing here symbolizing the worship of the Israelite God in Dan? The problem is that you probably think the golden calf of the Moses story comes before Jeroboam built the altar at Dan. But it does not. Okay, let's talk about priests real quick. And by that I mean let's take a long and complicated subject and boil it down to a few broad strokes. For hundreds of years now, the Israelites have had cultic sites, places where they worship, including now Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. It's not enough to just have the building, of course, you need to have priests to administer the various rituals. And to simplify things, we have two kinds of priests in ancient Israel. One group that is descended from Moses, and the other that is descended from Moses' brother, Aaron. And they are often rifles. So to make a long story short, King Solomon had kicked out the priests who descended from Moses and put the priests from Aaron's line in charge of the temple in Jerusalem. So the priests from Moses' line, who had been turfed out, they put their hopes in King Jeroboam, hoping to be put in charge of the religious centers at Dan and Bethel. But they weren't. So now the priests from Moses' line are doubly pissed. They're mad at the priests from Aaron's line, because they replaced them, and they're mad at Jeroboam for not putting them in charge in the new kingdom. So these priests write a story to criticize both people. In reality, Jeroboam repurposed a Canaanite symbol of the divine, 
the golden calf, to symbolize the worship of the Israelite God. But, but the biblical story makes it the opposite. It turns the golden calf into idolatry in order to criticize Jeroboam. And the writers make Aaron, Moses' brother, the guy who made the calf in the first place, because they wanted to disparage the Aaron priests in charge in Jerusalem. Everyone reading this story in the book of Exodus would have caught the meaning, that Jeroboam sinned against God, and his entire religious regime was a fraud. That's the origin of the golden calf story, and that's what you were looking at at the pile of rocks today in Dan. Very cool. But the point of all this is that despite the political split between the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, both continued worshiping Yahweh, the Israelite national god. How do we know? Because a foreign king told us. I feel like instead of calling this season the first thousand years or so, I should have called it, and then archaeologists found something really cool. Because it seems like every episode I play a little tune and then announce, and then archaeologists found something really cool. So, in 1868 of our time, archaeologists found something really cool. Actually, it was a missionary who discovered a huge chunk of basalt, about three feet high, with a few dozen lines of ancient writing on it. It was found in what is today the Kingdom of Jordan, and word got around fast. European scholars wanted to get their hands on it. To protest this archaeological imperialism, the local Bedouin tribe that had the stone smashed it. Several big chunks survived, and they eventually ended up in the hands of scholars who realized that they had an absolutely amazing find on their hands. The stone recorded the military campaign of the King of Moab, whose name was Mesha. Moab was a region on the other side of the Dead Sea from today's Israel, and what is today Jordan. Around the year 840 BCE, so just about 90 years after the split between Israel and Judah, the Moabite king Mesha recorded his fight with a powerful enemy, the kingdom of Israel, under the house of a king named Omri. Okay, so northern kingdom of Israel with a king named Omri against the kingdom of Moab with a king named Mesha. What's incredible about the Mesha Stele, the Mesha Stone, as it's called, is that it tracks closely with the Israelite account of the same situation written in the Book of Kings, which is just so cool. Okay, much can be said, but time is short. King Mesha records that first Omri, the king of Israel, and then his son, had oppressed the Moabites and seized much of their land. This angered the Moabite god, Chemosh. With Chemosh's help, Mesha fought against the Israelite kings and was victorious, taking back Moabite territory and gloriously rebuilding its cities. Now, the Hebrew Bible tells a very similar tale, in which the kings Omri, his son Ahab, and then his grandson Jehoram fight against the Moabites and King Mesha. Now, the Mesha Stele doesn't mention who the son of Omri is, but it was probably Jehoram, who was actually his grandson because it's in the biblical account that under Jehoram, this fight with Mesha is taking place. Mesha doesn't just claim victory over the Israelite kings, he also claims victory over the Israelite god. In seizing back the Moabite cities, Mesha says, he took the vessels of Yahweh and brought them before Chemosh. 
presumably to be smashed, or at least as a sign of superiority of Chemosh over Yahweh. But what's cool about this is that this is the very earliest mention we've ever found outside the Bible of the Israelite god Yahweh. It comes from the year 840 BCE. All in all, pretty awesome. By the time that the Kingdom of Israel was fighting King Mesha and the Moabites, relations with Judah had improved a lot. The civil war had ended, and in some arenas, Israel and Judah were allied against common enemies. The Israeli scholar Chaim Tadmor wrote that despite their political differences, the bonds uniting them were far stronger than the divisive factors. The national consciousness was that of a single people separated into two states. In spite of different centers and forms of worship, the common elements of national, religious, and historical consciousness continued to play their part. The biblical scholar Edward Campbell elaborates on the unifying ideology of the Israelites. Deep within the ethos of the people called Israel, he writes, was an ideology that honored a national deity named Yahweh, who offered and guided the destiny and vocation of his people and who willed an essentially egalitarian social community. This was not, Campbell points out, simply an ideology of the elite that was imposed on the wider population, but instead, he says, a shared ideology, exercising wide influence in the land in both the north and the south. Although many of these stories were written centuries after the events occurred, in order to express a certain ideology and political perspective, usually one from Judah, we've seen that some accounts do mesh well with the historical record. Although the Israelites hadn't yet hit upon monotheism, they did bear a great loyalty to their national god, Yahweh. When Jeroboam built the altars at Dan and Bethel, he did so not to replace the cult of Yahweh, but to bring the worship of Yahweh into his own kingdom. It only looks bad because the later biblical writers wanted to emphasize the centrality of the temple in Jerusalem, so they denigrated any other shrines to God. The golden era of the united monarchy may have come to a bitter end, but the fealty to Yahweh continued. And for that, we look to an emerging kind of character in our telling of ancient Jewish history, the prophet. We don't know very much about what was going on in the kingdom of Judah during this era. The Hebrew Bible pushes most of the action up north to the kingdom of Israel. Although Judah was the smaller of the two, it was stable. They continued the hereditary line of kings under the house of David, each son replacing the father down in Jerusalem. But up north, it was a different story. Lots of kings, several different dynasties, some that lasted for years, one which lasted for exactly one week. The Meshastili from 840 BCE talks about King Omri and his sons, whom the Bible names as Ahab and Jehoram. These were not great kings. And remember, as the Hebrew Bible tells it, a not-great king is one who allows the worship of other deities besides Yahweh. King Ahab was particularly guilty. He allowed his wicked queen, a non-Israelite woman named Jezebel, to attack the followers of Yahweh. And that will pit the two of them up against a prophet who, as far as we know up to today, has never actually died. His name was Elijah. 
evil queens, hapless kings, and a prophet who doesn't die. That's next time. As always, my website is jewunknown.com. And if you've been enjoying this podcast, please consider a donation of any amount to help keep it going. Huge, huge thank you to the wonderfully generous people who've already donated. Go check out your names posted on my website. Simply go to the donate page. And if you don't plan to donate, that's okay too. But please tell everyone you know to listen. My email is jewunknownpodcast at gmail.com. Talk to you next time. Lihitraot. See you later.